This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom, everyone, and welcome to Shabbos Kirvtuni. Here we are together in the, in our, uh, our, this is our 12th Shabbaton together. I think I'm the only, I don't know if I'm the only speaker who's been to all 12 Shabbatons, but I have a certain sense of responsibility given that the, uh, the organizers of the Shabbaton and their wives are all uh, possible use seminar graduates. They've all done my seminar and got together to create this amazing, amazing Shabbos. And this Shabbos really answers a, a question, and a very important question, and, and that is, how, do we, how, does our, uh, how does the Froom world heal from... from Basically, from Europe, really, because the 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 hell that our communities have gone through in Europe were um, were never really healed, and that's why uh, at your guys' age, um, meaning the average age of people coming to this place, let's say, is in their thirties, you're the last generation of Europeans from uh, Europe, meaning you're the you're like the third or fourth generation of from that moved to America from Europe. But you're still just as European, you're not, meaning you're way more European than you are American. Thank you so much. But uh, but what's been very interesting is that the kids, like your kids, generation, are actual Americans, fully Hasidic, but Americans. They speak like Americans and they think like Americans. It's a big challenge because uh, because answering, trying to trying to help kids today, teenagers today, or young kids today, grow up in, you know, through homes, thinking that we can just kind of recreate the regular European answer to issues, which is, you know, which is basically create a bubble around ourselves and, and uh, you know, and just hope it goes away. And, uh, and if our world's beautiful enough, maybe the ugliness outside will be enough of a, enough of a, a repellent for our children to stay, stay in the fold. But it turns out that it, that's just not an answer to an American kid today, because a, a kid being raised in the firm world today is, uh, is really part of the American culture. They're, like, they're really the first generations of Americans in uh, of the in the Hasidic world, in the Haredi world, and the world outside is is way too inviting, and the, and it really is very inviting. And also, the access has never been so strong. It used to be in the old days to get the access to the secular world meant you had to go there. Today, it's on, you know, it's right on the screen of someone's personal phone, and obviously, you know, we don't, you wouldn't want your kid on a smartphone, but. I mean, how do you keep a tab on his friend's, the, his friend's smartphone or anything else? Meaning, they're, they're, and, and how, can we, how can we really honestly um, know that we will, that our own personal avoidance of the access to the planet at large, which literally is all available and totally accessible in the palm of our hand, how do we, who are we to not have sophisticated answers because saying no is not very sophisticated to a kid who can just immediately click and access access internet in one second and 
And, we're, and that's what I'm saying is a lot of the European answers for things was just create a bubble around us. And that, you know, and our kids will somehow stick to that bubble that we create around us. And when, in fact, that's naive. It's naive to think that's what will happen, which means we have to develop in our sophistication as parents that knowing that the answer no or the answer is only kosher or the answer, any answer we, any answer we give that's not sophisticated is just going to fail unless we, unless we have super simple children. You know, I mean, you may have, you may be filling your home with kids named Yitzchak, you know, and they're just gavura and they like, they like systems and they like, you know, they like rules and they like all that stuff. You may be, you may, I mean, think about it, most women and men, when they pray at the Koisel, let's say they're praying at the Koisel if they're not Satmir, or they're praying, the Asia Torah is always packed with Satmir, people don't want to go to the Koisel, but they're, they're praying at the, you know, in, at the Koisel, because she's pregnant, and they're praying that their child should be a, a healthy child. Can I just ask you to come a little closer, please? It's not so fair to my voice. In, there's plenty of room for you to come forward. Thank you so much. It's just a shame that I should yell at the very first class of the seminar, especially I just got off a flight, so, so I'd rather protect my voice a little bit now. Thank you. So, when they're praying there at the Koisel, and they're saying that the child should be at Sadiq, please God, let this child be at Sadiq, and that's what they're ultimately crying, their child should be at Sadiq. But what are they really saying? They're saying, I want my child to be a Yitzchak. Please don't send me an Avram Avinu like this guy over here. You're an Avram. Don't send me an Avram. I don't want to hear from the Minal. I don't want phone calls home. You know, I don't, I don't want to... Don't give me the one who burns his father's idols. And we all have idols to burn. And, you know, there's certain kids who are going to challenge you and they're going to burn your idols. You know, and those are Avram Avinu Neshamas. And those are very important Neshamas. And if you look throughout history, you always see anywhere there's anywhere in, in the world where there was an, some kind of revolution going on, a revolutionary spirit, there was always a Jew behind that. The, the, the whole communist Russia all started with Marxist values, Marxist beliefs. That Karl Marx was a, another Jew, another Avram Avinu, coming to burn down the, the, uh, the patriarchy of, of uh, you know, of a money-dominated hierarchy that was the society then and now, and always will be. And uh, so they came with these, you know, beautiful ideals, but it, you, there's always going to be a Jew behind that. Now, it happened to be over 70 million people lost their lives over that one. So it can also be, Avram Venus can be very dangerous as well. So nevertheless, we can't be naive. We have to be um, people with sophisticated answers in, in complex times. And, and that's how we started this uh, Shabbos Kervtani, is that, is, uh, I, you know, I've been running my seminar, The Possible You, now for, this is now our 19th year, and thank God I have over 9,000 graduates throughout the world. Next one will be uh, in February, um, I have February 16th for men in Borough Park, I have February 23rd, does that sound like a Sunday? Does that sound like a Sunday? Yeah. Anyone know schedules? February 20th. Thank you. I, there's always someone who knows what the days are in a month. So it also should be seven days after the 16th. So it should be pretty easy math. Is that seven days after the 16th? Does that make sense? 
anyway, that'll be Muncie for men, and then a women's seminar will be the 25th, starting Monday. Those will be in Muncie. Anyway, but after running these seminars, what happened was I had several graduates who, who spoke to each other and said, like, how are we going to get this information over to the bigger Frumwelt? And the answer is, well, it's going to be really hard to get them into a 24-hour seminar. But what if we, meaning it's uh, the women's seminar is six hours a day by four days, and the men's seminar is, is also about 20, 24 hours. And how are we going to get the Welt to go do the work to heal the stuff that we have not had sophisticated answers for in our own lives? How are we going to heal ourselves? And, and so the answer was Shabbos Kirtani. And I got a phone call in Yerushalayim saying, can I come on such and such a date? And this whole movement began, like, right there. And I've been loving it, too, because I've, I get to have nothing to do with any logistics. All I have to do is fly into America and speak, which is, you know, 12-hour flight. But, then, but I don't have to deal with any of the stuff that these amazing organizers are organizing. You're going to have such a great Shabbos here because it's just such a beautiful Shabbos. And the, and the davening super high. Uh, Gentlemen and ladies, I don't know how much programming they'll do during the davening, but if you get a chance to come in there and don't daven in the back, like be up near the, be up near the band, so to speak, near the choir, and just close your eyes and breathe and let them just take you away. Because some of the highest daveners, also Mariv, also Shachis, uh, the Shluchet the Sibor, are going to be super high, and they're going to be backed up by a crowd. I, I asked... Um, What's the name of the Shluch Sibor for tonight? Um, no, it's just, it, name just skipped me just because I'm still feeling like I'm going 700 miles per hour. Um, no, uh, it's a Talmud of mine. It's a little embarrassing. Why? Ah, yeah, yeah. Shlomi. Eli Burnett. Eli Burnett is um, leading Dominic tonight. So I asked him once, I said, I said, you know, how real are you when you sound like you're or what did I say to him? Oh, I said, are you being real or are you faking it when the davening gets emotional? Because he gets emotional. And he says, I'm faking it. <laughs> I said, what are you faking? He says, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm not allowing myself to go so far that I'll wind up sobbing. This is for Shabbos night. I'm not, he, meaning he's faking it in that he's backing off a bit so he doesn't go so far as to just start falling apart you know, in the middle of leading Shabbos night, davening. And that, that's the kind of person who's leading davening. In the Shabbos day, I forget his name, but it's not, he's not so shabby either. Very, very good davening. Um, today's title, which was kind of long and redundant, um, I need to just uh, look at it again because um, I, j- I just would never memorize such a title. Why can't they get past the pain of the past? how it affects our relationships with everyone. So it, I imagine, because there's a pronoun in the second line, so I imagine that's on the pain part, that the pain of the past. So it goes like this, basically. The way it works is, is that we have the history of our lives. We've all been through what we've been through. Now, what have we been through? So well, you've got your, um, who your parents are and everything they've been through, because whatever they've been through, you're basically swimming in their pool. So, because if you grow up in that home, you know, you're, you're, you're in their pool. You've been raised inside that, those waters. 
And so you got their styles and everything they bring into things, because aren't, aren't you really made of your parents' best and worst attributes? Aren't they in you? And the older you get, the more scary it gets. And I, I'm dealing with that right now. You know, I'm just, just seeing how my, my, my parents' best and worst are like shining out of me. Well, one's shining, the other one's not shining so much. And, and I've got to work on that, and I've got to make a tikkun on that. That's one, is our parents. Another thing is our sibling order. You know, different ordered kids have different nisyoyness and stuff, and, and different pains. You know, and there's, there's a pain of a firstborn, there's a pain of middle kids, as you know, the sandwich kids. And there's also pain of being the, being the baby of the family. There's pains in all these things. And, uh, and then you've got your social economic strata. I mean, I've had students that I've met here in the Shabbaton who today are financially okay, but they literally were scraping around for crumbs as kids with parents who could not deal with feeding the family, so they just didn't even bother. And the kids, each kid had to fend for themselves, big families, where the kids had to literally, they were starving, basically. And, and, the, and the person that I met in the Shabbaton was dealing with heavy overeating issues having been raised like that, that they, they just can't stop eating now that they can afford to. And the, the so that's, a, that's pain of the past inside there. Then we got circumstantial stuff that's like, how can you avoid that? You know, like uh, embarrassing moments in school and, and um, uh, treacherous, treacherous relationships where we gave our heart to a friend in class and and that friend suddenly realized, for whatever reason, it wasn't advantageous for them to be close to us, and suddenly not talking to us anymore. And then we're out. You know, I, I just I just spoke to someone in Yerushalayim who's been in therapy for five years because his parents had internet in the house. His parents had internet in the house, and his best friend's parents, when they found out he had internet in the house. Wouldn't, you know, wouldn't let him play with him anymore. And that kid today, he's, how old is he? He's 22 years old. He's been in therapy since he's 17. Over, over his best friend suddenly not being able to play with him anymore. Because it led to a lot of other things that affected all his relationships after that. And he could never trust anybody after that. And so there's all those circumstances that happen to us. And so as you start to see, see it, you start to realize that we're like, we're building up a lot of cholesterol, emotional cholesterol, inside our systems. Or there's a lot of plaque, you know, plaque on our teeth. And now people go to get their teeth cleaned. And people do get their hearts checked up and stuff to make sure. And people have windshield wipers when their, you know, window gets a little too, too dirty and stuff. And... You know, the car, we also take to the car wash. I mean, some of us guys only go air Pesach, but, but uh, we depend on winter to clean the car for the rest of the year. And the, and, but we normally take care of the dishes in the sink, but there's one area where we just don't clean house, and that's this extremely complex emotional system of everything we've picked up for years and years of life. You understand? Like that's, it's just not cleaned out. It's not cleaned out properly. And because it's not cleaned out properly, obviously it's going to affect everybody. You know, even the Uber I got today, you know, there was an empty, he didn't see it from the driver's seat, but I, and I sat in the front because it was a comfortable car in the front seat. So I sat in the front, the first time I ever sat in the front with the Uber driver, and 
It was really nice. It was like a Cadillac Escalade or something, and a two-hour drive from Lakewood. So I, I just looked at the guy. I'm like, two-hour drive, man. Let me sit up front here. He's like, no problem. Moved to stuff, relaxed. But he didn't see there was a little empty bottle in the front seat. But even that affects the experience. You know, that, that just a little bottle in the front seat that was empty on the floor down there affects the experience. We don't live in a vacuum. We live in a world that's full of all kinds of interaction. And these interactions are happening on micro and macro levels. Macro is obviously, there's a person standing in front of you. Micro is the person could be standing 10 feet away. And you're already sensing them. You're already a bit postured as a result of that person being there. Um, You yourself have learned to protect yourself from further hurt. and, And hence, you're quite... You know, you're quite defensive and careful of yourself, and that makes sense. Because what you're really feeling inside is that you're not safe. Okay? So you're feeling not safe, but there's a problem with feeling not safe. You know what that is? If you're feeling not safe, what are you ultimately, what vibrational energy are you generating amongst people? I'm not safe. So I'm not feeling safe. Now, you might think, well, that'd be a great source. That'd be a good way to go, because then you'll get Rachmanis, because you're not safe, so maybe people will be very Rachmanistic around you. But it's not the case, because if, if, what, you're vibra- if, you're, if you, what you're radiating vibrationally to the world is I'm not safe, well, how about this? Imagine a big, giant dude from the Bronx, big, giant guy from the Bronx, wearing a big T-shirt that says, I'm not safe, is walking right towards you. What are you going to do? You can go to the other side. You can get away from that person. But what he, he was talking about himself. He's not saying, I'm not safe for you. I'm not safe with you. I'm not safe with you. But that's the crazy irony, is that if you don't feel safe with people, they're not going to feel safe with you because the, the ultimate thing you're radiating, and all these little phrases inside of us is what we put out all the time. And that's how you know, for example, if you go to a business meeting or an interview or anything like that, you know if it's going to go or not, because it's all vibrational. Sometimes the vibrations are like right on, and sometimes they're not. And you, you can tell how it's going to go. You see how it's going to go. Now, since we've developed in this class so far that we're all made of you know, great complexity, and a lot of the stuff isn't anything you want inside of you, and, and we've also established that it's going to have a big impact on others, which means ultimately your kids are swimming in your pool. Just earlier we were saying you're swimming in your parents' pool. Your kids are swimming in your pool. And then the question is, how safe is the water? How clean is the water? You know, normally when you throw a pool party, you know, I don't know how many of you have pools. Anyone here live in Tom's River or something? But the, uh, if you throw a pool party... It's a good idea to just go outside the house and make sure there's nothing floating around in there. You know, go through with the, with the, uh, you know, the, the uh, what do you call it? <laughs> the screen, the, 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 the net. Yeah, go through the net and make sure there's nothing in there before you have your pool party. Everyone's coming over to swim. So how do you clean out your own past so that it's not impacting everyone around you? And so that's what I'd like to talk about for the rest of our time today, is how to get that done.
And again, I'll repeat, the, I'll repeat that. How do you clean up your vibrational energy, so to speak, meaning your internal complexities? How do you clean up your internal complexities such that it's a pleasure to be around you, such that it's a pleasure to be your child, such that, it's, that, it, that people want to hire you or they want to do business with you? How do you clean up your energy like that? So there are several ways of cleaning up your own personal um, baggage of the past. There are several ways to do it, and we can talk about a few of them. Now, um, I am going to give one caveat, and that is that to really do it powerfully, and I don't mean to make a commercial for my seminar right now, but the, which is called The Possible You, the, um, to really do it powerfully, ideally it would be with guidance. I'm about to launch into how you get it done. I'm going to say how you get it done. But it, it's, it's such intense work to do this, and it takes such courage to do it, that you'll probably back off when it starts getting too raw. Because think about it. I mean, what are we ultimately talking about? We're talking about cleaning up house on the stuff that you'd never, ever, ever want to um, be in touch with, never to even identify. And certainly is something you wouldn't want to feel. And so here we've got a problem because on the one hand we know, we know that we're affecting all kinds of people in all kinds of negative ways based on our past. While at the same t- and knowing we want to get rid of it, but the only way to get rid of it is you have to identify it. And I want to make an important distinction because a lot of you might be thinking in terms of therapy right now, like, oh, is this like therapy? And the answer is no. It's, we're not discussing therapy here at all. Meaning you could call it a type of therapy. But it's, we're not talking about going in and like dealing, going into all your pain and, like, and crying out your pain, which may be a very healthy thing to do. But that's not necessarily what we're talking about. But all I'm saying at this point is that you probably want to do it with guidance. And, and there's another aspect of it that you'd probably want to do it, believe it or not, in a group. You'd probably want to do it in a group. Now, you're probably thinking like, no, that would be the last thing I'd want to do. The last thing I'd want to do is do this in a group. So why would someone do it in a group? Why would anyone do such a thing? Why would you open up your whole stuff, meaning not necessarily sharing it with anyone, But why would you want to do the deeper work of cleaning out yourself so that your children and your husband and your your wife and your, and your, your work and everything you do is done clean? Why would you ever want to do that in a group? You wouldn't. And, but there's a reason why. And the reason why is this. Listen carefully. It is so deep and so complex to go in there that it takes hours and hours and hours and hours to go in. To really get in there, it takes hours. Like, you remember the story, there was those kids in the Far East, I think, or maybe in India, they, got, they were on a hike in a cave and then it rained terribly and they got locked in that cave. It was like an international story of trying to free the kids from the cave. Remember that? Remember that story? You all know about that? Yeah? So, it takes time. I think that took days to get those kids out. It really takes hours and hours. Now, if any of you ever been to therapy and tried to open something up, um, there's a couple issues there. Like, number one is most therapy appointments are 50 minutes, 5-0. Now, 
If you have 50 minutes, you know, you're paying 200 bucks or 150 bucks, or if you're in Manhattan, you're paying 500 bucks, but you got 50 minutes to pull this off. Well, what's gonna happen? If you're lucky, at minute 40, you're gonna start feeling safe for the first time to actually start to share something. So now you forget the time because now you're starting to share. And 10 minutes later, the therapist is like, well, that's it for today. We'll see you next week. Which is a good thing you're not armed because you probably shoot the therapist right there for you know, stopping you right there. Now, how much are you gonna trust that therapist a week later? Okay, now, total shift from that. Let's try something totally different. What if the amount of hours that it would take you to break it through would be 24 hours and you're gonna spend six hours a day with a therapist for four days? Can you imagine sitting across from a therapist for six hours a day, six hours a day for four days? Can you imagine sitting across from a therapist for three hours? Can you imagine that? Like, personally, whether I were the patient, the client, or the therapist, I would sooner die than be working with a client for three hours straight. I mean, you just, you'd both want to kill each other, I think, at about two hours. About two hours, that's about it. And I've spoken to my therapist friends and said to them, like, you ever thought of doing double sessions or triple sessions or quadruple sessions so you can, like, finally get in there? And they're like, no, no, I would never do that. And they, they won't do it. And the reason why is because it's just too painful. Introduce group. Now you're inside a group. Well, what happens inside a group is group dynamics. Lots going on in the room. Things are very interesting. Hopefully you have someone from California who can't stop sharing everything. You know, so you know, it, all it takes is one Californian and uh, like it all comes out. Or even an East Coaster, and even a Hasidichi East Coaster, who is so fed up with what they've been dealing with all their lives that they're finally just like, they're just like, when I say, does anyone want to share? He's just like, I'll share. And they just like let it out and all our ears just catch on fire from what we hear. And so you didn't even notice that a half hour just went by. And you think this is about that person, it's not about that person, it's about you. Because we're all, you know, you, it's just, you gotta fill in the blanks, we all have our own story, but that story is our story, ultimately. It's just the way it happened to them. But we've all experienced them. And so there's five categories of the stories that take place. There's only five categories, and the vast majority of the stories, like 90, 5% of the stories are the first three categories. And that is something happened in the, in the form of rejection. Something happened in the form of failure. And some, or something happened in the form of one's own personal autonomy, meaning, meaning someone was controlling them. They were being controlled by others. And so there's two other categories, but the fear of the unknown and the fear of pain and suffering. But those three categories of rejection, meaning they were rejected, or the fear of failure, something didn't go their way, or the fear of being out of control. Now, it's, it's quite interesting when you look at the Hasidic world with those three fears, I mean, all five, but those three fears especially, is that think of the, exp if you're raised in the Hasidic community, think how much the expectations are for what it takes to not be rejected. What are the expectations, high or low? The answer is they're super high. They're probably, you could even say they're the highest of any population on the planet. 
Would you agree? Do you think there's another population on the planet that could beat us? And think of the percentage of people we're talking about, because Jews take up 0.01% of the world population. Most of the Asians. What? Most of the Which? Asians. Yeah, they, so that's interesting. Asians, but they're not held on this level. They're, not, they're held on a high level. Japanese are held on a very high level. But nowhere near what a, uh, a Hasidic kid's being expected of them. So rejection, anyways, is quite is is a is a very high bar of what it takes to be acceptable. And then the next thing is uh, failure. Is do we have high expectations? Do we have high expectations scholastically? Does it matter that your kid would be the best kid for delivering drinks to a tish, or the best kid to build the paranches, the bleachers at the tish? It doesn't matter. Are, do they have a special class in your community for those kids? Or are they expected to learn with all the others? The answer is they're expected to learn with all the others. And, and how about the girls? You know, Sarah Schneer wanted that everyone should be able to, every girl in the Jewish world should be literate. Yeah, did we, did we take that uh, too far, perhaps? How, how, far have we taken, how far have we taken her dream that every Jewish girl should be literate? You know, I, I can't even tell you. I, I raise, I have, thank God, I have a bunch of daughters. I have sons as well, but I got majority daughters. <laughs> I just can't tell you what they go through in there. And thank God they're smart girls, so they're, they're doing fine. But they're, oh my gosh. And I, we, we have a famous line in our house, Sarah Schneer never meant this. That's our line in our house. Sarah Schneer never meant this. And, and, and we understand it, like why it's like that. And, and the reason is, is because the marriage age got moved beyond 12. Because girls used to get married between 12 and 14 for all of history, Jews and Gentiles. There's still plenty of countries out there that haven't been touched by the West where girls are married between 12 and 14, boys 14 to 16. That is the main age group that you get married. But since that all got moved up a bunch in the last 200 years, so what are you going to do with the girls? Answer, you know, you're going to put, you're going to put them in some high-level expectation. And, and hence, the fear of failure, remember, I'm just bring you back to what we're talking about. We had the fear of rejection, and now we're on fear of failure. Fear of failure is going to be a very strong one because of the expectations on these girls, which the boys have to deal with as well. Very high expectations. And now think how fail, rejection and failure are linked. Because if you fail, how much does that have to do with rejection? You know, so failure and rejection, they're two totally separate fears. But boy, are they connected to each other. They, they're, they're directly linked, and especially in our communities. In our communities, re- rejection, the fear of rejection and fear of failure are always at play with each other. And then the third one is control, is the fear of, that someone might be controlling you. Now, how much control do we have over our children? in our communities? And the answer is, it's quite possible that there's no community on earth today with as much control as we wield over our children growing up inside our communities. I mean, it's, it's an uh, immense amount of control. It's so much control that, that I often meet the Gute Ingles, the Gute Ingles, but you know, they just got married. So there are good English who are aged 18 to 20. And you know, they got to me however they got to me. And I get to meet with them. And I'm dealing with a kid who's like, 
he's like Plato. Now, I don't know if any of you have married off yet, but you can actually get a chosen who's just Plato. And there's plenty of kalas who are just Plato, too. You know what Plato is? Yeah, you, it, it's completely undeveloped, but completely undeveloped. And uh, I recently had a boy who was uh, from a very strong Hasidus where the Rebbe's very involved in everyone's every single moment. And, and, and I know the Rebbe personally, and I know that that Rebbe, when, I was, when I've been at the Titian of that Rebbe, I'm so impressed. Because every single person in that Tish, even though there's lots of people there, feels his love. Every person feels cared for since they were born through their marriages later. Everyone feels totally cared for. But the problem is the care is so intense and so close that the, child, the children never get the chance to develop themselves. And then the kid gets married and now the wife has to respect a man who who's, hasn't been shaped, he hasn't been developed at all. Now you probably weren't expecting that. Remember the third fear is control? You probably weren't expecting that example. You were probably expecting an example of maybe a, you know, a molestation or a, some other situation where, where, you know, maybe parents are like, you know, the parents are real, like, you know, super strict type control. Yeah, that would also happen. But I gave you an example that was like something you would have never thought of, is that he was so well cared for. And that's one of the famous things, the great, um, the great uh, Professor Jung who uh, said that the, the best mothers fail. The best mothers fail. And the, and the worst mothers succeed. You ever heard that term, the best mothers fail? You know what that means? Listen up, ladies. Best mothers fail means that if you're a good mother, when your baby's an infant, you mother that baby so much. But now that that baby's a toddler, you mother it so much minus whatever whatever development that kid's at now. And then later, you, when the kid's six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you mother the baby, sorry, <laughs> you mother the kid this much based on their independence of like their own development. And then you don't overmother there because if you overmother there, you, you'll destroy that kid because that kid will never get a sense of how to walk on his or her own. Yeah, all you'll develop is just a, a child full of fear. And, and then you, you know, and, and it, but the worst mothers fail. Sorry, the worst mothers succeed. And they'll just keep mothering and mothering and mothering. And they just won't stop. I was at a Shabbos Kirtani a couple years ago where a couple came up to me. Very chassidish couple. They're from Williamsburg. And uh, the guy's complaining about his wife right in front of his wife. And I was, <laughs> I was so embarrassed for her, and she's turning red like a tomato. And so I finally said to the guy, I was like, felt so bad for this lady. I'm like, so how long are the two of you married? And he says, married? We're not married. And I was like, who's this lady? I mean, it's his sister. I don't know. Who's this lady? Says, oh, she? She's married to my schwiger. And so the third aspect that I mentioned, the third fear, is the fear of being out of control. And, and that is often very, very strong in our communities because it's just like, I mean, I, how, many, how many people have I met where the first real decision they made was after, in their life was after their Shevard brothers? 
But like, how good are you at making decisions if the first decision you ever made in your life was after your shiva broke up? How good are you at making those decisions? And then back to the very beginning of this year, before I started, was <laughs> the kids you're raising anyway. Because think about it, your kids, your babies today, are going to be being raised in the, in the 2030s. They'll be teenagers in the 2030s. Now, have you gotten a sense of how hard it was to raise teenagers in the 2010s? 2010s, simple to raise kids or super difficult? Super difficult. Can you imagine 2030s? 2030s, I mean, there's no way to even, we don't even know what there's going to be. It's just impossible to know because, because uh, I, I can't give you the real stats on this, but, but the development of technology, meaning, what do I mean by technology? Human accessibility to the world. The development of human accessibility to the world is, you know, there was a point where it was doubling every year, and then it was doubling every half year, and then it was doubling like every month. And now we, we just have no idea where, where the accessibility is going to go. And that's going to be your kids, your teens in the 2030s. We need sophisticated answers for these kids. And I'll just tell you one thing. You want to be absolutely like, you know, like one thing. I can tell you more than one thing. But one thing that's really important is be a good mother and be a good father. Now... Any of you guys willing to raise your hand and tell me what that means based on what I said in the last five minutes? What does it mean to be a good father? Be a good mother? Anyone want to try it? Okay, excellent. Not controlling them, but I would say in a more sophisticated way, and that is to... What? Not overprotecting. But, the, but, the, the, but in a sophisticated way, since you sat through the sheer, so a more sophisticated way of saying it is, is to parent a child, maybe too big a word here, commensurate, or to parent a child in direct relationship to their development. As it, meaning, the more they're developing, the less parenting. The more they're developing, the less parenting. The more they're developing, the less parenting. So that when they're going to be teens in the 2030s, they know how to navigate. They're able to navigate because there are going to be, I mean, right now, where we're at now, to control your child's access to the world if they wanted it. Now, maybe they don't want it. Maybe you had a Yitzchak Avinu kid. You know, maybe you had a Yitzchak who just wants to go with the program. But if you had one of those Avram Avinu kids who wants to know what's beyond his parents' idol shop, if you have a kid like that, that kid better have some muscles. And, and navigation skills. And we, as the parents, have a very serious responsibility to, to give that to them. We have to give that to them. As scary as it sounds, you have to. And that's because you love them. So allowing for and even, um, and even um, uh, pr- promoting and, and motivating their independence is is going to be your ticket for having Erlich kids. <laughs> and you know how we call them kids at risk. You know, it's, uh, it's really adults at risk today. You know, the kids, we, got t- our t- we more or less have our thumb on the kids. It's the parents that are the problem these days. And, they, and they're not a problem, but they're, they were overprotected, and now, they're, uh, and now they don't have muscles. They don't have the strength to, to protect themselves from their access to the world. 
just a little at a time, you know, like, I mean, I could tell you in my house, when, you know, all my daughters went to the same schools, so that's not much of a decision. But before they go to that school, we actually ask them, what school do you want to go to? Let us tell you, that I, my boys too. My boys, you know, they're all raised in Pince Carlene. And they've been with these kids since they're in diapers, in, you know, learning olive base at three years old. Like, what, they're going to go to a new school for Yeshiva Ketana? But I sit down with my boys and I say to them, like, okay, here are the options. And I give them a whole list of options, <laughs> including, like, Dati Lumi schools, you know, Kipasuga schools, and, and like, a whole list of, like, these are the options. Make a choice. Choose it. And I know what they're going to choose. It's just like, you know, there's certain things as parents, you know what the kid's going to choose, but give them the chance to choose it. I can't tell you how many times I've been in my seminar and, and had, you know, some lady crying her eyes out that she never, ever, ever made a choice in her life. And she wore hand-me-downs the whole time. So whatever older sister chose an outfit, if she chose an outfit, you know, let's, let's give her the benefit of the doubt that her older sister chose outfits and not her mother said, oh, this looks good on you, which is more likely the case. But, but that, the, that she, she never chose an outfit. She never had her, her, a new outfit. But no choices ever were made in there. And there, there actually was a time where she wanted to go to another school than her sisters, and that, wasn't, that was not an option. And so we give them baby steps as they grow up. We let them choose things. And we know what they're going to choose. It's like, it's like leaving a plate full of cookies in the kitchen and, you know, and having a five-year-old walk in there. You know what they're going to choose. What's that? Right, you're not, they're not choosing good and bad. They're just making little choices. Would you like to get out of bed now, or would you like to get out of bed in five minutes? You wake them up, obviously, five minutes early. You say, oh, time to get up, Yankee. Would you like to get up now or in five minutes? Five minutes, please. Yeah, the, 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 um, maybe the kid has one more, two pairs of shoes. Now, you can just tell the kid it's pouring rain. It's pouring rain, like you're wearing your rain boots today. Or you could go to Yankee and just say, Yankee, it's pouring rain. You want to wear your regular shoes? I mean, you'll get a little soaked, but you'll run around better during playtime. Or do you want to wear your rain boots? And your feet will be dry and warm. And uh, the obvious choice is the rain boots, but give Yankee the chance. Give Yankee the chance to choose what shoes he's wearing. Now, this develops muscles, and eventually they'll, um, they'll get all the way there. Now meaning they'll get to the point of being uh, powerfully choosing adults. <sighs> Whoa. We're a little over time, and I'm, believe it or not, or you could easily believe this if you know my classes, I'm off topic. <laughs> I'm actually off topic, because what I'm supposed to be explaining is how to get the past in the past. So the, the answer, I'm just going to answer it in a line. The way you get the past in the past is by identifying, listen carefully, identifying how the boo-boos of the past have, how the boo-boos of the past have become our identity and, it's going to have an end, more than one probably, and identify how I've developed how I interact with the world 
based in such a way that nothing triggers those boo-boos and get deeply in touch with how that impacts the people I love most, especially myself, but how that impacts the people I love most, leading to the sense that that's too big a price to pay and I will not pay it anymore and who I am therefore is an amazing, wanted, beautiful, uniquely brilliant, capable, powerful, spiritual, humble, loving human being. Good luck doing that on your own. Chances are you're going to need help getting there. And so, Baruch Hashem, here we are. Shabbos Kereftani. The work begins, and we will work throughout, throughout the Shabbos. We're all going to grow together. And, uh, and please, God, you know, the, you'll, you'll get the time and the courage. Well, you'll never get the time, and you'll probably never get the courage, but you'll, you'll somehow get yourself to just stop thinking long enough to put yourself in a, in a real serious seminar situation so you can break it all through and, and uh, live a life free and clean and full of love and connection. Amen. Shalom, Ira. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.